a regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Glad that you're with us today. Got a great show for you. I don't know if you managed to uh, catch any of the first night of the Republican National Convention, but uh, there was a pretty strong Second Amendment flavor, I got to say, between the McCloskeys, Mark and Patricia McCloskey, uh, they're in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, speaking up about the uh, rampaging mob outside of their door and the fact that uh, they're now facing felony charges. Also, uh, Andrew Pollock, whose daughter uh, Meadow was murdered at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in uh, Parkland, Florida in 2018, gave an absolutely incredible speech uh, where he talked in, in, in shocking detail about his daughter's murder and how she, in her final moments, tried to save the life of another student there. And Andrew Pollack did not then turn around and say, and you know what? We need more gun control. No, he blamed the school district. He blamed authorities for failing to take the threat seriously posed by that killer in Parkland, Florida. And the repeated warnings and red flags that went up over his behavior each and every time, uh, that behavior just sort of you know pushed aside And uh, nothing of any consequence, no help given, uh, no punishment, just uh, allowed to continue on his way. And as Andrew Pollack said, uh, this is the type of policy that the Biden-Harris administration would put in place in public schools across the country uh, if they take office in November. It was really, uh, again, it was a pretty incredible speech by Andrew Pollack. I encourage you to go check it out yourself. Uh, now, speaking of uh, gun owners, we've got some uh, good news to report. Larry Keene, Vice President, Senior Vice President, General Counsel at the National Shooting Sports Foundation, uh, joined me just a, a couple of moments ago to talk about the uh, the new figures showing 5 million Americans have become gun owners for the very first time Since January 1st of this year, what does that mean for the 2020 election? What does it mean for the Second Amendment going forward? I'll talk about that and more with Larry Keene. Take a look and a listen. Larry, thanks so much, sir, for joining me on the program. It's great talking with you. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you, Cam. And some absolutely uh, breathtaking numbers uh, being reported by the National Shooting Sports Foundation. You all uh, estimated earlier this year that, uh, what was it, between... uh, now, the first six months of the year, I guess, two million new gun owners. Uh, but that number seems to be accelerating because uh, uh, now you all uh, are estimating as many as five million Americans have purchased a firearm for the very first time between January yeah. of this year and, and, and today. Yeah, we are a survey of our retail members indicates, uh, looking at the data, that we estimate there are five million first-time gun buyers uh, in America in 2020, um, which is just a stunning increase. Uh, and, you know, you see it reflected in the next data. You see ammunition uh, sales up 135%. Go into a gun store and, you know, really the shelves are bare. The manufacturers are hiring, working extra shifts, Um you know, to try to keep up with demand, which is not, you know, initially started um, due to COVID and, uh, and the shutdown and insecurities about what was going to go on. And then you had the whole uh, rioting that continues to go on in places like Kenosha, Wisconsin, and Portland, and 
others should be there, unfortunately. And, um, you know, it, it big increases again through that time period. And now as we move closer to the election, I think that's going to drive, continue to drive demand and sales right on through the election. So it's a really unprecedented uh, growth in sales. And what's also interesting is the changing demographics. You know, a large percentage increase in Asian Americans purchasing firearms, very large increase percentage-wise in African Americans purchasing firearms and women. About 40% of the 5 million first-time gun buyers are women and you know, just astronomical increases. So, so how are you? Uh, how are you all able to estimate this? Uh, we, we obviously have the NICS numbers, and you all can look at the codes <laughs> to figure out. Okay, this is a, a recheck for a concealed carry license versus a gun purchase. Um, but how is it that that you all are able to to estimate? You know the the number of new gun owners, and then you know how many of them are women, how many of them are African American, and, and things of that nature. So we go right to the horse's mouth, so to speak, and we ask the retailers, "What are they seeing?" You know, at their checkout counter, at their retail counter, who are their customers? Have they seen a percentage increase? What's the makeup of their of their customers? And we check that, and you know, it, it corresponds to the increases we see. Uh, you know, there's no question there's increase in sales, right? I mean, we, we see that. So our question is, well, you know, are you seeing first time buyers? And the answer is yes, significantly, five million so far this year. And I think that trend is going to continue. So we look at the next data. We look at what's going on in the manufacturers. You know, they're cranking. I mean, it goes right from the, you know, assembly to packaging and on the truck and out the door. It goes to, a, you know, either drop ship directly to a retailer or it goes to a distributor where they just wand it in to their inventory records and wand it out. And it goes right out the door, you know, just as quick. I mean, it's, you know, there is, you know, we, uh, we were just down uh, at a major distributor, uh, and there's nothing on the shelves. And the second the product comes in from the manufacturer, it is out the door that same day or the next morning, uh, to, you know, to get it to the to the retailers to deliver to the customers. That's amazing. Uh, and, and I've talked to a lot of people in the industry a very, very long time, and they have said, and it's been my own experience after 20 plus years, I've never, there's never been anything like this. In terms of demand, yeah, unprecedented. I think you're right, and you know it's interesting. I saw a, uh, an article by the Trace, I think it was yesterday, trying to make the case uh, to to gun control supporters. Hey, listen, don't worry about all these new gun owners because they're probably not going to be political. Uh, and they had a couple of quotes saying, "Well, you know, we only estimate about three percent of uh, new gun owners get politically active." Um, maybe that was the case in, in years past. I don't know, but uh, it seems to me that again, as you just said, we've never seen anything like this before. And, and right. so many people that I've talked to, uh, gun store owners, uh, gun owners, even some new gun owners, um, they're very aware of the gun control laws that are in place that, that may be uh, inhibiting them from purchasing a firearm. And in Illinois, for example, there's a backlog right now of about 140,000 FOID card applications. And until right. you get your FOID card approved, you can't you legally can't purchase buy. a firearm. Right. So, you know, it, it may very well be that, uh, you know, these folks would not have been political in years past. They would have gone and maybe, you know, maybe buy a gun for self-defense. I'm a little concerned about what I'm seeing in Chicago, but I'm not going to vote for my Second Amendment rights. Well, I would argue that that there are millions of Americans out there who are experiencing uh, the, the, the problems with gun control firsthand right now. It's not preventing violent criminals from getting a hold of guns, but it is stopping them from being able to protect themselves and their families. You have an entire generation of fence sitters, if you will, um, 
who may have supported you. And we saw this in, in anecdotal reports from the media, people saying, I used to support gun control, but I, you, with all going on, I went out and bought the gun for the first time. Those people came off the fence. Uh, and the other side is, I think, safe to say, panicked that they've lost an entire generation of fence-sitters who, for the first time, experienced the gun control laws that they were either agnostic about or maybe even supported because it didn't, it didn't affect their lives. Now it affects their lives. We've heard from retailers like in California, for example, where retailers said the customers were stunned and angry that they were told, you have to come back in 10 days. What do you mean? I'm a law-abiding citizen. I passed the background check. Well, no. Sorry, that's the law in California. So will all of them become politically active? Probably not. Will a large percentage of them? I think they will because they have now experienced gun control up front and seen how ridiculous it is, and they're concerned about their safety. So when it came right down to it, you know, their common sense that I need to protect myself and my family, and they went out and bought a fire, and that's the primary reason by far that why people are purchasing firearms. And you can see the kinds of firearms that are being sold, handguns uh, cheaply, shot, you know, home defense shotguns, uh, MSRs, um, you know, which are useful for home defense as well. These, these are what's flying off the shelf. Yeah, I mean, and it, well, at this point, too, it's probably, you know, what you can find. Uh, on the shelf is is what you're going to get. So 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 let me ask. I mean, you just talked about going to a, a major distributor, nothing there on the shelf. You, you know, it's not that these companies have shut down, right? I mean, they're still working oh, no. as fast as they can uh, to get the firearms and ammunition out there. We we've even seen some reports. I think uh, uh, one of the ammo companies adding some uh, uh, employees to their plant in, in Arkansas. How is the industry mm-hmm. trying to keep up with this demand? And you know, is it, it? It seems to be like it's not just as easy as saying, "All right, well, let's." Go build another factory somewhere because what happens if at some point, you know, this demand starts to slow down a little bit? What does that new normal look like? Is that something that the industry is wrestling with right now? Well, they are trying. I mean, I, I've talked to many CEOs and people that are running factories, and they are trying to increase production. They're trying to hire new people that are qualified. You know, when you hire a new employee, it takes a while to train them up and make them productive. So that takes time. Uh, there is, you know, I think um, some people are concerned about, you know, the, uh, this all coming to a crash and halt. So it's not easy to add new capacity. You try to make uh, you know, as much product with the capacity you have, extra ships, you know, uh, tool up to make the product that's most in demand, and maybe you, make, you don't make as much of something that's not in as great a demand. So you adjust. You know, I know for a fact that manufacturers are trying to hire or are, are in fact, hiring um, for their factories, both on the ammunition side and the firearm side. So um, you know, there are jobs out there, you know, but it takes a while to get people trained up and make them productive. But it, and you can't build a new factory overnight, right? You can't just say, well, let's go order, you know, 10 more CNC machines, right? Not that simple. Um, so... And, and, you know, you want to run your business smartly. You want to make sure it's sustained. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of that going on as well, making sure that, but, you know, we have seen increases in next checks reflecting increased sales over many, many years. There's mm-hmm. been a, going, going, you know, far back even before Barack Obama, but certainly during the Obama administration, and we've had inflection points like 2008, 2008. 
2012, 2013, 16, and now we're seeing it in 2020. But, you know, we were asked this question after 16 all the time. Like, well, you know, it's the Trump slump and, you know, the market's collapsed. And so, wait a second. Yes, 2016 was a peak. And we're coming off of that peak, uh, which everybody knew could not go on forever. Right. But the important thing was that the valley floor was higher. So you, you sort of normalize and level out. It was well above where it was in, in prior years. You know, you go back and look at the next data and, it, you know, we put it up. It, you know, there's a, there's an upward slope on gun sales. There are now well over 425 million firearms in civilian possession in the United States. Never been more. <clears throat> and, and until the recent spike in violent crime in these cities where the rioting and the, the unrest is going on, you know, crime has generally been down. You know, you have these crime-ridden cities where all these horrible shootings are taking place, like Chicago, like New York, uh, you know, and, and like Baltimore, for example, where crime is out of control. And, and you see a large number of people purchasing firearms for self-protection or African-Americans, an enormous increase. Women, African-Americans, uh, Asian-Americans, all purchasing firearms for self-protection. And that, again, is the primary reason. Absolutely. Yeah. And we can talk about, uh, you know, what I think is happening, uh, why we're seeing that spike in crime in places like New York and Baltimore and Seattle and Chicago. But you're right. It's it's not new gun owners as much as uh, gun control advocates, you know, might want to pin this on the uh, increase in, in gun sales. Um, you know, la- last question for you, Larry. I mean, when you see this, uh, as you call it, a tectonic shift uh, in the marketplace and the a complete transformation of the gun owning community, I mean, again, think think out, you know, more than uh, past the election, uh, a year or two from now. What do you think the Second Amendment community looks like? Or is, is it largely contingent on what happens in November? Well, I, look, if um, the anti-gun forces capture the White House and the Senate and keep the House uh, and start passing the radical gun control agenda that includes um, <clears throat> gun registration, includes confiscated firearms from law-abiding citizens that, you know, lawfully owned firearms, the most popular rifle in, you know, in the United States that, that have been, you know, for many, many years, of which there are over 18 million in civilian possession. That's going to keep the Second Amendment community highly motivated. And I, I think you know, we're at one of these generational uh, points. We saw this happen in the late 1990s in leading into the Gore v. Bush uh, election, where the Second Amendment was a pivotal issue. We saw it cost uh, John Kerry the White House in 2004, uh, and then the, the national level, the Democratic Party moved away. They recruited pro-gun Democrats to run in, in these rural seats, the so-called blue dogs. There, there really aren't any blue dogs left, per se, and now you're back to you having just a stark contrast um, at the national level. Between the two parties, you have the most pro-gun president in the United States, you have a pro-gun Senate, and you have on the other side the most anti-gun ticket in the history of the Democratic Party uh, and promises by Schumer to do away with the filibuster so they can do things like repeal the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act so that big cities with these crime problems that they fail to address can suit gun manufacturers as they did in the 1990s and blamed the gun manufacturers for the criminal misuse of lawfully sold products. 
That's exactly what they're doing. That's exactly what they're trying to do. And groups like the Brady Center and every town have spent the last, you know, 15 years trying to find ways around the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, which is doing exactly what it was designed to do, is to stop these sorts of frivolous lawsuits uh, against manufacturers when someone else criminally misuses a firearm. You know, it's, it's like suing Budweiser for drunk driving act. Absolutely. Or suing, uh, suing Zippo for, uh, you know, the fires in Kenosha, Wisconsin last night. That's exactly right. Larry Keene, uh, Senior Vice President and General Counsel of, of uh, the National Shooting Sports Foundation. As always, sir, I appreciate you coming on the program. All right, I'm going to give you one last curveball question. I don't even know if you can answer this or not. But uh, obviously, you know, we're all paying attention to what's going on with COVID. We have the SHOT Show coming up in just a few months. Have you all been trying to make plans? What 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 is your expectation for what the SHOT Show 2021 might look like this year, next year? We, are, we get asked this question literally every day, several times a day. The SHOT Show, uh, we are planning, marching forward with the SHOT Show. It, it is our complete expectation that the SHOT Show will take place in January, which is months from now. Um, you know, so that is our plan. We're working closely with our partners in Vegas, the, the Sands, the Venetians, the Palazzo, uh, the people that, you know, put the show on for us. We're, you know, we're, we're actually, we'll be the largest shot show ever because we're taking additional space in the Caesars Forum, which is across the street from the Sand. Mm-hmm. So we'll be adding 150,000 net square feet of wow. space, uh, which is, uh, you know, and it, it is, uh, like 95% sold out. And so registration will open in early October, and we are marching forward. The only way the SHOT Show doesn't happen is if the governor says you can't have a show. But otherwise, we are marching forward with the show. All right. That is good news to hear. Uh, Larry Keene, as always, sir, great talking with you today. Thank you so much for your time, and look forward to doing this again very soon. I think I hit that curveball. I think you did. (laughs) Out of the park. Like Aaron Judge. Oh, my gosh. Look at that. I just just praised a Yankee. Oh, cats and dogs living together in San Larry Keene, as always, sir, real pleasure. All right, that is some good news about SHOT Show. I'm uh, cautiously optimistic that uh, I might actually get to be in Vegas come uh, early January of 2021, although I don't know if Miss E will let me with the whole, you know, cancer thing, but uh, we'll keep an eye out for that. All right, uh, let's get to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day. Our recidivist report, we're going to start there with a story out of Arkansas from the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Man accused of shooting woman in the head. I mean, there's the headline for you. As it turns out, the man who was accused of shooting that woman in the head, uh, lengthy criminal history, without many consequences, Emmanuel Daryl Taylor uh, arraigned this week before Judge Herb Wright in uh, Little Rock, two years after prosecutors dropped two first-degree murder charges against the man, when the only witness who could place Taylor at the scene of the murders of Glenn James Jennings Jr. and Monty Allen Gilbert stopped cooperating with authorities and dropped out of sight. You don't have an eyewitness. You don't have a case. The charges were dropped. The men were found fatally wounded in Gilbert's North Little Rock home in January 2017 in a killing that police believe was a result of a uh, drug deal gone wrong. Uh, Emmanuel Daryl Trailer uh, arrested the next day. Charges dropped in August of 2018 after Trailer had spent 18 months in jail. Now, he stands accused of shooting a North Little Rock woman in the head four months ago and stealing her wallet. Charges of attempted capital murder, aggravated robbery. He's pleaded not guilty to those charges, which also include, by the way, uh, unrelated counts of illegal firearm possession, drug trafficking, and terroristic threatening. 
Trailer's been in jail since May 15th when he was arrested by North Little Rock police on that attempted murder warrant. About three weeks after 24-year-old Imani Maureen Baker was found bleeding from a head wound outside of the family's home, 46-year-old Sasha Moore told investigators she had just gotten home from work, found her front door open, her daughter disoriented and covered in blood on the front steps of a neighbor's home. She actually just called her daughter a couple of minutes earlier saying, hey, honey, I'm on my way home. She said her daughter sounded fine, gave no indication that anything was wrong. Uh, perhaps as, as, as soon as three minutes before she actually got home, she was talking to her daughter. Um, Baker was unable to answer questions at the scene. They were able to track her footprints back into the home and into her bedroom where investigators found bloody sheets on the bed, blood-soaked carpeting, and in the kitchen they found her cell phone and a recently poured drink. No signs of forced entry, but the back door, which was typically locked, was found unlocked, according to the police report. She um, was eventually released from the hospital, so she is recovering. She told police uh, at some point that a man she knew as VA shot her in the head. She gave detectives the man's phone number because he had called her before going over to the home. Baker said that her wallet and the wallet that uh, her mom had were both stolen from the house. Detective Roel Dallas reported that he was able to link that phone number back to trailer. Baker identified him in a photo lineup. Uh, court records show that trailer is known by authorities to go by the VA nickname. Uh, also facing uh, drug dealing charges, uh, according to this arrest, also facing a felony firearm charge stemming from an arrest in Little Rock about two weeks before. So, I mean, this guy, again, well known to law enforcement. But here's the thing. He's facing terroristic threatening charges as well, based on accusations he made threatening phone calls to his fiancee last November when he was on probation for assaulting her. Yeah, he had been placed on three years probation. About two months before the reported threats, he pled guilty to felony terroristic threatening Misdemeanor domestic battery in September of 2019. That stemmed from a uh, December 2018 arrest of a 44-year-old woman at the uh, couple's home. Uh, this happened about four and a half months after he'd been released from jail on the murder charges. He then gets picked up on a domestic abuse charge, and, it, and it, he's given probation. Given probation. In that case, Shonda Cecile Jackson wrote to the court describing the charges as, quote, blown out of proportion, complaining that prosecutors had manipulated her, stating that she had been the instigator of the altercation, which may have been the case, may also have been uh, a confession made under duress. Again, despite repeated encounters with the law, Mr. Trailer again, has suffered very few legal consequences for the crimes that he is alleged to have committed. And uh, I got to tell you, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm hopeful that these latest charges will uh, lead to a conviction. But uh, if I were prosecutors in, in North Little Rock, Arkansas, I would be referring that felon in possession case to the U.S. attorney. Their trailer's got enough charges right now that can be uh, handled locally, including those attempted murder charges. Bring that felon in possession charge to a federal judge and a federal jury, and he could be looking at 10 years in federal prison and having to serve 85% of that sentence before he is eligible for early release. Given, again, the slaps on the wrist that this guy has received in the past, might not be a bad idea to go ahead and refer whatever cases you can to federal court. Now, on to our armed citizen story of the day. This one, I got to tell you, this is an amazing story. From KEZI in uh, Oregon, a uh, woman used her bear rifle to save a kidnapping victim from possibly being murdered on Sunday. In an interview with uh, KEZI, the woman said that she spotted the man who was badly beaten walking along a road as she was on her way to go bear hunting. So she stopped. She called 911. 
The victim told her that he and his girlfriend had been kidnapped and that the kidnapper was driving his car, which was parked nearby. The man told her, quote, he's going to kill me and he's probably going to kill you since you're here. The woman said she told the man to find a place to hide. And then when she saw another man walking down the road with a handgun, she got her rifle out, waited for the troopers to arrive. When troopers got to the scene about 7.30 that morning, the suspect had already fled the scene on foot. He and a second suspect remained at large, but a third was taken into custody. Uh, 39-year-old Michael Light of Florence, Oregon, faces charges of second-degree assault as well as first-degree kidnapping. Investigators say that Light and the two other men uh, assaulted the man. By the way, we do have mugshots for uh, all three. Uh, investigators say that Light and the two other men assaulted the man for an extended period of time at his campsite. Light then kidnapped a woman who the bear hunter says was the victim's girlfriend and Light's ex-girlfriend. A search found Light and the female victim in a vehicle in the area. Light was taken into custody. The woman suffered minor injuries. 31-year-old Michael Loki Wilson, 28-year-old Dakota Appet, or Appelt, rather, uh, identified as the other two suspects involved. Again, they are still on the loose as of right now. But uh, thankfully, that bear hunter uh, in the right place at the right time and was able to uh, stop that attack from going any further by protecting that victim uh, until authorities got there. I think this could qualify as a good deed of the day story as well, don't you? But we have one of those, too. So let's get right to it. Uh, a, a story not quite as life-threatening as the uh, one we just told you about, but still a, a family in need in Arcola, Illinois, helped out uh, thanks to one officer's kindness. WCIA says Officer Chandler Jakes pulled up to a gas station to fill up a squad car over the weekend, and something caught his eye. He said, I saw this guy and his two kids were just sitting there. There was no vehicle around. Turns out their truck had broken down uh, just outside of the uh, small town of Arcola, Illinois. Uh, Officer Jakes figured that something might be wrong, so he uh, stopped what he was doing, went over to, to check on him, said, hey, is there anything I can do for you guys? Do you need help with anything? So they needed a, a way to get home to uh, Dietrich, Illinois, which is about 45 miles away. Not far if you're driving. It's a heck of a walk. Um, would have cost the family $250 to take a taxi there. Officer Jakes didn't want to leave the father and his two young children, so he said, listen, if you can hang out here, until my shift is over, I'll give you a ride home. He went back to their truck. He got their belongings, got a car seat for the uh, the little one, came back to pick up the family. Another person had actually offered to give him a ride. Uh, and Officer Jake still had about 30 minutes left on his shift. So he said, that's great if you can take him. I really appreciate it. Helped load up the Good Samaritan's car. Family got on the road. Officer uh, Chandler Jake said, if there is an opportunity for me to be compassionate, I don't really think anything of it. I don't think I did anything special by offering these people a ride. I just wanted to help somebody out. Uh, this probably would have gone unreported, except for the fact that the uh, police station got a call thanking Officer Jake for the kindness that he showed that day. And the uh, Arcola police chief decided he wanted to highlight the actions of his officer. Officer Jake's been with the Arcola police for about four years, uh, but he's actually moving on. And uh, the last day, his last day on the job in Arcola, Illinois, will be tomorrow, will be Wednesday of this week. So before he departed, leaving on a uh, high note in the right place at the right time and willing and able to do the right thing to help out a family in need. Officer Chandler Jakes, not sure where your next stop will take you, but we certainly do appreciate your service and your uh, good deed. That is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. want to thank you for being a part of the program as always. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Town Hall Media on YouTube. That way you never miss a program. Also, Bearing Arms, Cam and Company on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you might use. We will be back tomorrow. I did tell you I was going to be gone yesterday, by the way. I had a couple of emails say, where's the show? I told you I was at the dentist. Everything's good. We're all good. 
And I will be back tomorrow with more of the latest Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation. Until then, be well, be safe, be free. And we'll see you soon with another edition of Bearing Arms, Cayman Company. 